Hello, listeners. Before we begin, a few quick updates on this episode. First of all, a general apology for any fluctuations in sound quality, both in this episode and also in recent episodes. Uh, I have moved a number of times in the last few months and have only recently finally settled into a stable recording um, situation. So hopefully from here on out, my sound quality should be a little bit more consistent and also a little more consistent with Allison's. In this episode's audio, you may notice that there is some background noise or a background hum in my uh, audio. That is because this episode was recorded back in July and I had to have my air conditioning unit on so that I didn't die. I also wanted to let you know that we have made some updates to our Patreon page. As a reminder, we can be found at patreon.com slash classicallytrainedpod, and we've recently set up some monthly goals that, if met, will allow us to, in the first instance, cover our basic costs for creating this podcast, including our hosting, and hopefully to meet some goals that we have in mind, such as being able to afford transcripting, being able to produce more outtakes, And in the long term, eventually making this podcast um, both able to branch out to other media and and other types of content, as well as uh, for both myself and Allison to be able to take home a little bit of money in compensation for the work that we do. Obviously, that's pretty pie in the sky for us. We make this podcast because we like it and not because we're planning to make any money on it, but uh, that is something to keep in mind. And if you are interested in supporting our work, you can go ahead and go to, again, patreon or patreon.com slash classically trained pod. Also, you may be aware that Twitter is apparently suffering a fiery demise, maybe. Um, If that does happen, we'll update you about where to find us on social media. But for the time being, just you can follow us on Patreon without uh, paying us. And also just continue to subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. With all that out of the way, I will stop talking and leave you to listen to the episode. I hope you enjoy. Have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on when you are listening. Listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature specialist and language person. And I'm Allison, and I have a background in Roman archaeology and late antique studies. And uh, this episode, we are talking about The Wicked and the Divine by... I'm going to mix up their first and last names. Jamie McKelvey and Kieran Gillen? Yay, you did it. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. I feel like I sometimes want to call them Kieran McKellen and McKelvey and, <laughs> and uh, Jamie Gillen. Whatever. Um, eh. Because I just think of them as Gillen and McKelvey. Yeah, because they, they're a duo. Yeah, uh, who are uh, comics, they're a comics duo, an artist and a writer, and there's also a third guy whose name I actually don't know, um, though I've read, read it several times, who does the colors for them. Yeah, there's somebody who does, somebody separately, I think, who does inks and colors, like, I believe there are four people credited often on these guys. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, they're a, a team and they have done other comics together. Um, they've done other comics for like Marvel. They did a run on Young Avengers. Which was very good. <laughs> uh, I think you've probably read it. I have one volume of that. I, I haven't actually read the entire Gillen and McKelvey run of the um, Young Avengers only because um, annoyingly... In retrospect, I never bought, like, a volume of it because it was at a time when I was collecting singles, but I never uh, collected all of the singles. Oh, no. So I actually have never read the whole uh, run. So uh, maybe that'll be my next library borrow after I return um, all nine volumes of The Wicked and the Divine, which we are not talking about all nine volumes on this episode. We're going to talk about the first four and then... We might revisit the remainder either next episode or possibly down the line, depending on what happens. Um, but the first four are the most immediately interesting for our purposes, I believe. Yes. I don't know. I've I've been reading them for the first time, so. Yeah, this is my... I've read the first and second volumes, like, a number of times. I uh, wrote a paper on um, Bacchic rights and... Um, Dionysus in this comics because I took a class about mystery religions. So we're going to talk about Dionysus later. So this is very helpful. I had I had pre-research done. It's yeah. Cheating. Um, That's not cheating. Well. Every single thing I say on this podcast, bar almost none, is like shit that I already knew. We, are, we do not get paid for this. I am not getting graded. I, there's a limit. <laughs> Suffice to say, neither of us knows what the hell is going on in these comics. Um, but I think, Allison, you said that you did prepare a recap for what we've read so far. I have an extremely um, bare bones recap, because if I tried to recap everything, we'd be here all day. Um, yeah, but, there's a lot going on all the time. <laughs> yeah. So the premise of Wicked and Divine is that there are gods who reincarnate into young people every 90 years, and within two years of their transformation, they die. Uh, these gods have a variety of abilities, but they all provide spiritual experiences for their followers through music. Wicked and the Divine is set during a modern-day reincarnation of the gods and conceptualizes human interaction with divinities as the dynamic between celebrities and fans. Uh, the first volume introduces us to our protagonist, Laura, um, who is a fangirl of the gods and follows her. She becomes acquainted with many of them. This includes Lucifer or Lucy, who has been imprisoned for the murder of two would-be assassins. Um, the second volume follows Laura as she tries to solve the mystery of Lucy's murder. Um, Lucy was murdered at the end of volume one. Um, and, uh, at the end, it's revealed that she is a god herself. Um, she's Persephone. Um, and then she's promptly murdered. And she's murdered by a character named Ananke, who is a mysterious figure who guides the pantheon of gods uh, upon their reincarnation. The third volume kind of fills in the backstories of many of the other deities. Um, and it also re reveals that Ananke has been planning the deaths of numerous deities for some unknown purpose. Um, these deities not only include Laura and Lucy, um, but also uh, other deities, um, Inanna and Tara. Um, the fourth volume reveals that, ta-da, Laura is actually alive um, and follows her and the other gods as they take revenge on Ananke um, and try to stop her from hurting uh, any of the other gods. Do you have anything to add, Julia? I will 
add a couple of things. Firstly, uh, basically the timeline goes, Laura meets Lucy, Lucy kills, question mark, two would-be assassins, as you said. Lucy is put in prison. Laura tries to figure out... Laura basically attempts to help the gods in cracking that case to get Lucy out of prison. Lucy breaks out of prison and immediately gets killed. Laura then spends time trying to solve Lucy's murder, gets embroiled with the gods, further becomes a god, gets killed herself, etc. Um, it's just like a lot happens very quickly, so I wanted to kind of clarify that timeline a little bit. Yeah, no, totally. The other thing is um, an important early relationship is the relationship between Laura and a investigative reporter named Cassandra, who is uh, something of a skeptic about the gods um, and essentially is trying to like unravel their secrets a little bit, get some dirt on them, um, and in volume three or four, uh, also ascends to godhood as, uh, one of the Norns, I believe. No, it's actually volume two. It happens oh. pretty quickly, because Laura's still alive. Right, So yeah, it's, it's around the end of volume two. I forgot, because we have this kind of anthology volume in three with a bunch of the backstory of a number of the other gods, and, and it sort of fills up quite a lot of space without very much happening, which means yeah. that, like... A lot happens in one and two, and then a fuck ton happens in four, and then, like, but, like, not that much happens in three. So my sense of what happens in what volume is just going to be a mess. I, I am so sorry about that. No, it's, it's yeah, it's kind of weird, because I was, like, trying to summarize three, and I'm like, what actually happens in three? And I was looking through it, and I was like, it's just backstory. <laughs> it's, like, 80% backstory. Um, yeah. Which is kind of well needed at that point. It kind of makes sense, because Laura has been, like, presumably murdered, and so that's, like, a good time to go and flesh everybody out, but... Yeah, for sure. It, it definitely makes sense to have that backstory happen there, um, but it's also, like, what is going on again? <laughs> anyway. So, Julia, did you like it? Oh, I... I like this so much, actually. I, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm going to be fully honest, there has not been even one second of reading this that I have been like, okay, cool, I, like, get what's going on right now. Um, no, absolutely not. I have been confused the whole time. <laughs> However, it's so, it's very well constructed, the world building's really interesting, um, it's just, like, conceptually very, it's, like, it's conceptually fascinating, like, the... Gillen and McKelvey have a very, I mean, they have a really distinctive visual style, which I think really suits the kind of psychedelic events <laughs> that yeah. have been going on. There's a reason that the, like, it, for any of our listeners who may be familiar with the Gillen and McKelvey Young Avengers run, like, it's like that TM because Gillen and McKelvey are like that. Um... <laughs> Uh, which is to say that it's, yeah, like, it's a lot, but it's it's very good. And and I think that the kind of story that they seem to be telling in this is well-suited to their particular narrative and dramatic style, which is obviously, you know, it's obviously good. So I, I have been enjoying this very much. Um, I am definitely... 
I, I wish that I knew more about world mythology because there's definitely a lot that's going over my head, but the stuff that I have understood, like the Easter eggs that are in there for classical mythology fans, certainly, or like people who know things about, about like, um, you know, ancient Mediterranean mythology um, seem well-researched and well-executed. So, which, I mean, obviously we'll talk more about that, but that to me is an encouraging sign, I should hope, that the other stuff from other cultures is equally well-researched and well-executed. However, like, I'm not going to say that with my full chest, that I am sure that they did just as good of a job with the other world cultures, because it is not infrequently the case that, you know, it's very easy to do a good job with mythology that you might be more familiar with from your own cultural background and then do kind of a shitty job with other people's. So it's not impossible that they've done a shitty job with the other stuff, but I kind of doubt it based on how much research they've clearly done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I am really happy that you like it because I, as is evident, like this is one of my favorite comic series. I just love Jamie McKelvey's art. Yeah. So much. I, his art style is very unusual for comics because it's very, it's very defined. It includes a lot of detail, whereas like normally you think of comics art as pretty simple, sometimes very like, I don't know, like sketched almost. Um, yeah. Like that there's a sort of like a bit of an almost unfinished element to it just because you're filling up so much. Not that that's like a, a bad thing, like that's part of the style, but I just, I really love his style. Um, I don't think it necessarily would work for everything. Um, and I know some people don't like it, that they maybe find it a little stiff, but I I just think it's beautiful. And yeah, they do all of this stuff with color that really suits, because, well, because a lot of the, the, a big part of these comics, is there's a lot of like dancing and music. And so having that really like interesting, like psychedelic color, like really emphasizes what's going on in the comic. Well, and there's a lot of like, transcendental experiences happening and the extremely psychedelic color work against McKelvey's like really raw detail especially the way he draws faces and like body postures tend to be very like there's a there's a kind of stiff realistic-ish detail I mean it's still it's still obviously stylized in in comics-y in a certain way but there's definitely an amount of like like realism that is an aspect of his style that definitely means that just like the contrast between those two things I think really suits if if that makes sense yeah yeah and actually one of the things also too about just like kind of a side detail about um Jamie McKelvey's art is that he in uh often like in like um issue breaks will draw characters faces from head on I there are very few artists that can draw a character head on where it actually looks good. Like usually that looks terrible and the way he draws, he is able to do that and it just looks amazing. Um, I also just, I absolutely love the way that they play with um, the page layout. They, they do all sorts of interesting things with page layout. Like it's, it's never just a sort of, it's very rarely a sort of standard comic box I want to say the I want to say the comics term for that is maybe paneling. Yes, I think you're right. I took a class on this like five years ago. I should probably know the word for it, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother is a cartoonist, and I sat in on a lot of cartooning workshops when I was a little kid. But I have retained a minimal amount of that. But yeah, it's 
it's just it's used to such a, such a great effect. I mean, they even have interesting panels like at at one point, like Laura goes to like the convention, the like fan convention where she's speaking, and they've got like the fan convention um, little program stuff like that. Or um, you know, there's there's actually a lot of use of alternative media there's a panel there's a panel of laura's room where she's like labeled all the things in her room i i'll also so this isn't in the volumes that we're discussing but i will shout out volume five is a really good example of this which opens with a series of like like magazine interviews with the members of the pantheon in the aftermath of everything that's gone down with ananke and like it's it's just like a really exquisite like use of a non like of just like a different media. Um, it's very impressively done in my opinion, and um, this comic does a lot of that. I I just like I think if you are a person who appreciates comics as a medium, um, this will be an enjoyable read or at least an interesting one. Like I, you know, obviously maybe people who read more comics than me would be more sticklery about certain stuff, but they clearly are doing a lot of experimenting with the medium and the genre and they get a lot of mileage out of it. I think. Yeah. I think also another thing too, is it's not necessarily always like they do sometimes stuff that's really complicated and detailed, but also they make a lot of use of like just black in certain areas because there's also a lot there's a lot of situations where like maybe a character has like literally you know sort of has like there's like a blank in their memory or they've there's a lot of time that's spent like underground and so they they also use like the absence of stuff quite a bit so anyway that's that's kind of it for my uh, my rant about how good good the art is in this comic i just i love looking at it it's just so incredible yeah I'm I'm really enjoying reading it. I haven't read a graphic novel or a comic in a really long time, so I'm I'm really enjoying the opportunity to get back into the medium a little bit because I I really do love comics. Um, I think they're great. They're fun to read, and anybody who tells you that reading comics doesn't count as reading can fuck themselves. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's my that's my uh, that's my rant on the topic. Also, it's worth noting that these are, like, published through Image and therefore are not, like, part of the Marvel or DC universe. They are an independent comic, um, which is really enjoyable. You know, there's lots of great, like, DC and Marvel stuff, but there's also a lot of great stuff that's being published through, like, Image. Image or I think Dark Horse are the two big ones that, yeah, publish, uh, like, non-DC or Marvel stuff. So, um, and I think because you sort of hear about like DC and Marvel stuff, and then you hear about like, a sort of more like literary graphic novel. And I don't think people really talk about that, like the other space of like, okay, people are doing like superhero or fantasy stuff. That's not DC and Marvel. (laughs) Like that also exists. Yeah, for Um, sure. So, yeah. And also, I think too, that like, this very much is like a piece of literature. Like, again, like there's like, you know, sort of people when people are like, oh, well, comics are like real media, they go straight to something like um, Persepolis, or what are some other things like uh, stuff along that line, 
along that line. Um, I mean, even shit like Watchmen, I think, tends to get cited because yep. it's like an uh, it's like an unsuperhero comic, you know. Yes. Like the point of it is like fuck superhero comics as a genre. This is gritty, um, but like we don't. And I mean, I'm not gonna say that Wicked of the Divine is not gritty because it is. There's a lot of death and a lot of sex like, right off the bat immediately in a very explicit way, and this comic deals with a lot of pretty serious themes and, and has a lot of serious content, but it's not, like, bleh, fuck comics. Yeah. I don't know, you know? Or, like, fuck the genre. It's, you know. Yeah, like, because you don't have to say fuck the, yeah, I think, like, comics as a genre gets, like, a lot of flack, and people are like, oh, well, you can actually, graphic novels can actually be good. Like, they always point to stuff that's not sort of, yeah, that either is, like, fuck comics or you know what so i just thought of i just thought of another example uh mouse is the other one that people like graphic novels have value and it's shit like mouse which like don't get me wrong i read mouse as a teenager and that shit changed my life but like it you are also allowed to read comics that are fun yes that are still literature you know i mean not to say that superhero comics aren't also literature they are but like but it's it's also like this like fantasy comic like it's using I mean, part of the reason why I love this comic so much is that it's using fantasy in a very specific way to explore something. Like, the fantasy is there for a purpose, and the purpose yeah. is to, um, like, investigate the, like, relationships between, like, fans and celebrities and, like, the impact of, like, music on people. Like, there's, there's like, very specific reasons why this is being used, um, which is, like, the best – the reason fantasy is good – I mean, it has it has strong themes, and it does a good job of using its genre conventions in exploration of those themes. Like, it's just good literature. Yes, it. In conclusion, that's it. That's the episode. Yeah, we don't need we don't have, we don't need to say anything else. The Wicked and the Divine is good. All that classical shit that's in there, we don't need to talk about that. No, no, we don't. But also, maybe we should. So, yeah, like, we should do that. That may, in fact, be the point of our podcast. Who would have thought? Yeah, maybe. Anyway, why don't you kick us off? Um, I mean, I'm happy for you to... Cool. Basically, my talking points are characters, because that's kind of, I think, the way to approach this from, like, a point of the way it's using classical material, because it's not necessarily, like... There's not really a plot structure in a way that... I mean, you know what I mean. You get it's it's classical yeah. in the sense that it's using especially particular elements, particular characters, and thus it makes sense to approach them from the characters. So the person that I wanted to start with is where it makes sense to start with, and that's with Laura uh, slash Persephone. Um, her Persephone is very much a Chthonic deity. Um, so Chthonic is like a underworld deity. Um, and, you know, there's there's not really sort of the other elements you see with Persephone. This is actually a pretty unique take on Persephone, honestly, because usually Persephone, her relationship is her character centered around her relationship with Hades. Um, and there is no Hades. Yeah. Well, and, and she's also often very much like her spring aspect, which was not her primary aspect. As far as the Greeks were concerned, they were real concerned about the whole death thing. Yeah, and I think I think it's really interesting because her story does I don't think you would notice this. Like I didn't necessarily notice this until I thought about it, but the way her story maps onto the the traditional story of Persephone. So this okay, so there's a lot of like all 
Greek god. There's a lot of, a ton of mythology. I'm just gonna stick pretty well to the Homeric hymns version, which is the, you know, sort of mo- most well-known version. Um, so yeah, there's the Homeric hymn to Demeter, Demeter. I don't know. I, I say it different every time. Um, Julia, can you explain what a Homeric hymn is? Because I'm really bad at explaining that. Uh, yeah. So they are short-ish. I mean, the Homeric hymn to Demeter is like, I don't know, 500 lines or something like that. So it's actually long as fuck. There's a reason that I've been putting off reading it, despite that it's on my reading list for this summer. Um, (laughs) uh, They are Homeric era, which is to say probably whatever, 700 BCE, 800 BCE, somewhere in there. And they are also Homeric in style, which is to say that they are epic poetry written in dactylic hexameter. They are songs of praise to specific gods. We have a bunch of them um, of various lengths. Uh, Demeter is definitely the longest one and gives us the story that is the kind of founding mythology for among other things the uh the cult of Demeter at Eleusis which is the home of the Eleusinian mysteries which is an extremely important Athenian um mystery cult or like just just out, Eleusis is just outside of, of Athens um and so these poems um relate various stories from mythologies of various gods um and some have become and remained more canonical than others i would also say that demeter is one of the ones that has remained extremely canonical in terms of being like this is the version of the persephone story that i think most people know the best um and because it is not a hymn to persephone it is a hymn to demeter It is very much about Demeter's search for her innocent daughter. And so there's a lot of focus on the whole spring goddess thing, um, which I think is why we have ended up adopting that so heavily now, because this version is the version that a lot of us know the best or or like a version that is a takeoff on it. Um, I think that there is also a version in in Ovid, of course, but I, I don't know that quite as well. And Suffice to say, um, the Homeric hymn to Demeter is an extremely important source for Demeter, but particularly for Persephone um, and the Hades and Persephone story. And uh, yeah, it is. It, it but it, it is a song of praise to Demeter. And so I think I think that's something that maybe gets a little bit lost in in conversations about this text. That like this poem was not written to be about Persephone. It was written to be about Demeter. And for, and like for Demeter. Yeah. So that's, that's that. <laughs> yeah, like this, the, basically the Homeric hymn to Demeter like presents the story that like you probably know about Persephone, which is, you know, that Persephone gets abducted by Hades because he wants to marry her. Um, and then Demeter's really bummed out. Um, and so she's like, no grain until I get my daughter back. And then Zeus is like, well, shit, give her, give, you got to give her back um but then persephone has eaten some pomegranate seeds and so she has to stay in the underworld some months of the year and yeah i i think we 
oh, you know what? I think you were in this class with me, Julia. I think we talked about this in um, Woman in the Greek World, whatever that class was called. Yeah, we definitely did. And I, I, I'll also raise for the record that, in fact, in the Homeric hint to Demeter, I believe that um, Persephone is taken as Hades' wife with Zeus's permission. Yes. And also, just in case anybody has missed my memo on this one, she is abducted and she is unhappy about it. <sighs> yes. Yes. Th- these, this is the case. Um and uh, the I think one of the things we ended up talking about that talking about in that class is like how this is about like a mother's grief. Like this is that's what the a lot of what the story is about. I mean, there's also the um the word's not didactic. Do you know what word I'm thinking about? Uh, no. So the, it's it's a myth that explains something. Like it explains why the seasons happen. Uh, what's the oh word? Oh my god. Um, I feel like it's e something. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. It's not didactic, you're right. It's, uh... I know, like, it's... Oh my god. Yeah, motherfucker. We have two degrees, folks. We have four degrees between us. Well, I'm Googling it. Because we should know this. This is really embarrassing. I've had to teach this. Uh, ideological! Fuck's sake. Ugh! Ideological! Oh my god, I can't believe I had to fucking Google that. Yeah, so this is, this myth is, it is ideological, um, but it, it is also about D- Demeter's grief in, in losing her daughter and like, you know, the sort of parallels of, of having to let go of your child when your child gets married. I mean, and it's also worth noting that one of the reasons that this is leaned into so heavily is that there were heavy, heavy parallels in Greek culture between marriage for particularly for a woman and death. Mm. There's a lot of like language around like ending and completion that gets used for weddings and brides um and there are also a lot of very funereal rituals around marriages in greek culture because this was basically like great you've come to the end of your path you have evolved as far as you're going to um welcome to the rest of your life there's there's just like a lot of stuff around brides and death in greek culture there's like a whole paper about this i'm sure that has been written or that should be written um it's very interesting stuff and persephone is really a paragon of that yeah it's so i mean you kind of see this that is what kind of really clear is the more sort of clear parallel in the story is that you know laura is laura until her parents and her sister get murdered by ananke and then, I mean, she gets turned into Persephone before that, but that's most of her arc as Persephone is as this this death god, this under underworld god, which literally she is underground for a good portion of this, that issue. Um, and, and she's also literally gone underground to escape Ananke. Um, and so, yeah, this like, you know, her loss for family really parallels um, Demeter's loss of Persephone. Um, and yeah. I mean, long story short, the Homeric hymn to Demeter is about familial grief. And that is why, and, and so is Laura's story or a lot of Laura's evolution into Persephone in this. Um, and she gets framed as like the destroyer, which to me is very true to the way the Greeks thought of Persephone as a figure. They were scared. They were shit scared of her. Persephone does actually 
get you often get called kore um which is means like girl like maiden um instead of using her actual name because it's big no-no to use her actual name um i believe in um the iliad persephone is referred to as the dreaded persephone um like yeah there's not not great connotations of persephone um yeah another interesting thing i found actually while researching this is that apollodorus says she's the daughter of styx and zeus which i didn't realize like the river styx is like the river of uh like broken dreams yeah it's like the underworld river and it's sad uh and so i didn't i didn't actually realize styx was personified i guess it kind of makes sense that sometimes it is i mean they personify everything (laughs) this is this is accurate um so yeah apollodorus just decided that was the case for some reason um also, so apparently there seems to be an etymology floating around for Persephone as um, ferein foron, which translates to, like, to cause death. I couldn't find good sources for this. Um, like, they do kind of reference that in the co- the comic where they, like, you know, they, they call her, like, the destroyer. Um, so I don't know if that's a true etymology. I also couldn't be bothered to look up the words ferein and foron because... One of them is definitely a verb, and I didn't want to figure out the form. Well, ferein is literally the infinitive of to of pharaoh to carry or to bear. So that checks out. Okay, th- thank you. And then foron, I have never heard that as a word for death. I, like, like, phi, omicron, rho, omicron, nu. Um, there might be something, I mean, depending on where it came from, it's entirely possible that this is, like, if it's, like, an Alexandrian etymology or something, I mean, checks out that it would be bullshit because they made up all kinds of shit, um, to be like, ah, yes, this, I believe, comes from this word. And it's like, you guys didn't know what the fuck you were talking about. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, long story short, yes, Persephone was definitely, like, she was scary. Yes. Scary death. death. Scary. Scary death. In conclusion. In conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, Great. Do we have anything else? Uh, No. I think I'm, yeah. I'm good on the Persephone front, unless you have other things. Uh, No. I I do really like the way they do Persephone in this, though. It's kind of a refreshing take. Yeah, it's like... Uh, Persephone is always related to Hades in other media. Well, and also she's often like Uwu flower girl. And it's like, no, she's terrifying. Yes. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. The only passable, I mean, the only thing that I really like in which she is associated with Hades is um, Hades town. But that's, that's the only thing I'm giving a pass. <laughs> We can move on to my second character, which is Cassandra. Uh, so Cassandra is the not at all obvious <laughs> etymology that she is um, telling, trying to tell everybody that the gods are frauds and no one is listening to her. I wonder where that comes from. Yeah, I, it's, it's like a good, I mean, it's very on the nose, but it's also like, you know what though? Like, yeah, it's correct. So it's fine. It's good on the nose. And also it is like lampshaded, but like in not like in a bad way where um, Lucy is like, uh, like makes fun of Cassandra for like 
choosing that name. Oh, yeah, so because Cassandra is trans, and Lucy is, like, basically, like, you picked that, and she's like, fuck off. Uh (laughs) Yes, yeah. That, that's most of the interactions between Cassandra and Lucy. Also Cassandra and everybody. <laughs> yes, yes, that is also accurate. Um, so, yeah, Cassandra, her, the main account of the mythological Cassandra story comes from, I believe, unless you have other comments, Julia, I believe it's the, um, in uh, e- Aeschylus's Agamemnon, that's where she sort of, like, tells the story of, like, well, here's why I have this gift of prophecy and nobody listens to me. And in that version, now the Greek is really weird. Like, I couldn't understand what it was saying a little bit. Like, I read the English translation. I'm like, I don't know what exactly is happening here. But basically, like, she's talking to the chorus and she's explaining like, oh, I have this gift of prophecy, but nobody believes me um, because I like broke a deal with Apollo. Because basically it says that Apollo is like interested in her and she like, willingly enters a relationship with him but then she like breaks a promise and i like didn't fully understand that like i know there are other versions where it's like she's like forced yeah so it's so uh now we're getting into shit that i worked on in my thesis um because (laughs) i i this she in the agamemnon uh, so first of all the agamemnon is not the only source that we have for cassandra however this is definitely one of the ones where she gets to like explain her deal but she's also a pretty prominent figure um i believe she pops up in the iliad she pops up in the aeneid she pops up a a bunch of places um and uh, um also like in in um the trojan women she's kind of in the background being like this shit sucks and you all should have listened to me and everyone's like oh poor cassandra she's mad um mad as in like insane um who who did um is that also aeschylus uh the trojan women is euripides i believe okay yeah so anyways but so she cassandra references apollo as um as a polystice, uh, a wrestler, which implies some force. So my interpretation essentially, um, that basically she was an, an, uh, the object of Apollo's desire that she initially was like, okay, I'll entertain your advances. He gave her the gift of prophecy and then when she withdrew her consent, he was like, fuck you, and cursed her. It is unclear, it is unclear in the Greek, and both commentators on the text and translators disagree about whether Cassandra was raped by Apollo, or whether indeed she ever really fully consented, um, or if that he basically gave her the gift of prophecy as part of a courtship gesture. Um, in any case, she seems to have initially entertained his advances and then withdrew her consent. Uh, okay. The line is, the particular euphemistic line is 1206 of the Agamemnon. Um, but he, as a wrestler... Uh, I'm just looking at the Greek. It's like something... I want to say, like, breathed his grace on me. Just looking at the Greek. I'm fully... I fully have not looked up a single one of those words. So, uh, (laughs) I might be wrong. Um, In any case, uh, 
suffice to say that she all she yeah she initially was like yes i'm into this and then when she was like wait actually i don't think this is what i want he was like never mind fuck you and not he didn't just take back the gift because he had already given her the gift and the gods don't i don't believe tend to straight up take back the gift but he doubled it back on her so that nobody would believe her when she spoke yeah, and this is especially bad because then all sorts of horrible things start to happen. Yeah. And then she can foresee them and nobody believes her. Yeah. So. Uh, anyway, shout out to that one comic on, like, Tumblr or whatever that's like, my lord Apollo will sexually satisfy a woman tonight. And the priests are all like, no way that could ever happen. Uh, I love Cassandra. She's one of my favorite figures of Greek mythology. Yeah, so back to this Cassandra. Yeah, back to, sorry, back to this Cassandra. <laughs> no, that was a good, that was a good detour. Um, I think what's interesting about this Cassandra, too, is that A, she says so she has a master's degree in comparative mythology and, like, that this was the focus of her research. Um, and at one point she says that she was bitter that it was all lies. And so what Cassandra takes issue with and what she like says that she takes issue with is she doesn't really care about any of their like magic powers or whatever like that's not what she doesn't believe she doesn't believe in the way that the gods make people feel because they don't make her feel anything and so that's what she's upset about yeah that she doesn't yeah she doesn't experience the like spiritual transportation or euphoria that other people feel yeah when when in the presence of the of the the pantheon or when at their parties or whatever which is like an established effect mm-hmm. yeah and then so of course then she becomes a god of prophecy because she becomes a north god of prophecy called Erder, who is one of the norns so they're like a trio of like i think like fates or whatever there's a similar idea to the greek fates um and then you know, she gives her performance and still nobody believes her. And then the scene with her, like, breaking down of, like, yeah, I told them everything and they still cheered. Like, they still believed in, like, the power of, like, the performance. So, yeah. I don't know. Do you have anything else to say on Cassandra? Yeah. I mean, I, I think she's a good, I mean, I think she's, as with, as we were just saying with the Persephone thing, like, she's an interesting take on the existing mythological figure. Like, she adapts a lot of the stuff that is, like, already there. Um, you know, the whole... I feel like the whole concept of the investigative journalist is really well-suited to a Cassandra figure because, like, what the fuck do whistleblowers do except for say shit and then have everybody be like, oh, no! And then ten minutes later, everything's gone back to normal. Shout out to this fucking, like, article, that this horrifying article that I was reading this week about... Um, about Alzheimer's research fraud where a dude submitted this guy, the whistleblower guy, like he submitted a whistleblower report about this fraud um, committed by a particular researcher. And literally like, like three months later, this guy won a $5 million grant to continue his research. So, Oh, great. um, Yeah. Like nobody fucking was paying attention or like nobody gave a shit. So he went wide and he had to go wide in public with it and sometimes even that's not enough like that's just how fucked our modern media landscape is and so i think the investigative journalist is like it's a savvy parallel um yeah 
a lot of these are savvy parallels. And it's it's picking up on, like, much like Persephone and familial trauma, this picks up on, like, Cassandra's kind of... I don't know. There's just, like, certain... There's just, there's just like, certain stuff, I think... Um, I, I don't know if I can quite put my finger on what it is about the Cassandra mythos that this comic picks up on so adeptly, but I, I feel like, much like with the Persephone thing, there is something there that is, like, okay, you guys, like, got something about this, or you you picked an... El- like, they picked an element to draw out that mm. was an unusual and interesting one. Yeah. Well, because... When Cassandra sort of springs to mind to me, like, Cassandra seems like a figure who never is portrayed with, like, any sort of agency. Yeah. In, like, in modern media, she doesn't seem like she's really portrayed with any agency. Whereas here, like, Cassandra has agency. It's just she can't control this particular thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's maybe also, I, I can't, I, like, don't have enough brain cells for this, but I feel like there's probably also a comment in there to be made about, like, self-knowledge and, and how people tend to be, um sometimes weird towards people who are really um, aware of themselves and, and, but, and have like a self-knowledge that is, um, that other people disagree with, you know, like Mm. that, like that, like knowing and asserting yourself and your own agency is taken as a threat and tends to lead you to be discounted in other ways, which I think connects to, or could be connected to the fact that this, this Cassandra is a trans woman that, yeah, you know that like, and also like a trans woman of color. Yeah, right? yeah, she's she's um, Japanese, I think. Um, yes, and yeah, it's definitely like there's definitely like a a comment to be made about like the way that asserting yourself, particularly asserting yourself as a queer person, um, and especially a queer person of color, tends to lead to people thinking that you shouldn't be listened to. Yeah, because you you get taken as aggressive. Yeah. Well, like, Lucy does that. And, like, she she refers to Cassandra's name. Like, she says it's later. She's like, I knew you were trans. I put, like, scare quotes essentially around your name to hurt you. Yeah, that, it, yeah, that she's, like, being a bitch about it. Because it's Lucy. I guess we can move on to... So the third person I have on here is Ananke. Mm, yes. We mentioned earlier that the Greeks love to personify stuff yeah. and things. <laughs> So Ananke is a real deep cut. I had like not heard about this mythological figure, if we can call her that before this. And I mean, I guess that's maybe part of the point is that this is a deep cut. Yeah, I I mean, I actually don't know anything about her mythos as a personified figure. I just I just recognize the word. Um, Ananke is the Greek word for necessity. Yes. So this is a little confusing and this is kind of a summary, a very brief summary of a lot of confusing texts that I didn't have time to go through. Um, so she's brought up in a bunch of different texts. So like in um, Plato's Republic, uh, Plato says that the fates are, are her daughters. Um, she gets brought up in Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound in Herodotus's histories. And then another thing that she seems pretty associated with is um, like Orphic texts. Mm. Now I took a class on mystery cults and I still don't understand Orphism. It's still, (laughs) I'm still confused by it, but it's a, it's a mystery cult and they have sort of their own like 
conception like it's a, it's an ancient greek mystery cult and they have their sort of own conception of like the universe and the creation of the universe and often ananke alongside like Cronus mm. seem to be two figures who are like result in the creation of like the world it's very confusing huh yeah <laughs> but i guess essentially it's that it's that she's involved in a like she's involved in like a creation myth of like the universe or the world um and like yeah that like in the orphic texts like there isn't the sort of traditional what we understand from other greek mythological texts to be the sort of creation situation huh okay yeah orphism is weird as fuck so that all checks out sure why not so Orphism is named after Orpheus, but I don't, I still don't get it. I don't know. Do you have anything to say about it that like, can make it make sense? I think that's all to do with like the underworld shit because they have a lot of underworld shit going on. And so that's why, that's why it's Orphism. Well, I, there's something about Orpheus getting torn apart by the main ads, I think is an important part of the cult. Oh yeah. Cause he, yeah. Cause eventually he like dies after he yeah, there's like a lot. We talked a bunch about Orpheus in our Hades Town episode. Go listen to that. Um, I don't really have anything to say about Orpheus. I will say, I mean, about Ananke, um, it's interesting that you mentioned the Prometheus Bound, because I guess I haven't gotten there really yet. Like, I've read most of it now in in the Greek, and I don't remember this coming up, but it's also possible that people have just decided, like, some commentaries have decided that, like, this is a reference to an and um a personified necessity yes that yeah. i simply did not read as such because these things do tend to be a bit ambiguous yeah that's sort of what i was thinking like there's some cases where it's like yeah these in sort of in um aeschylus and herodotus like it it does sort of seem like it, yeah it's ambiguous whereas stuff in like the orphic texts it's very like this is like a figure um this is full admission. This is off of theoi.com. There are translations of this bit because, frankly, I couldn't be bothered to live, look up all of these different bits. Um, yeah, so there's, um, yeah, Aeschylus and Prometheus bound. Uh, he donned the yoke of necessity with veering of mind. Um, and that that's, like, in reference to Agamemnon sacrificing his daughter. Oh, I yeah, I haven't gotten there yet. There's also... Uh, Prometheus is speaking to the mountain. Um, let Zeus, uh, let him lift me on high and hurl me down to black Tartaros with the swirling floods of stern necessity. Um, so yeah, there's these kind of things that are, yeah, they're like a little bit like, okay, well, is this personified or not? But then um, here are these, get ready for these Orphic fragments. Okay. Are you prepared? No. <laughs> and he says he Epicurus, um, from Epiphanius? I don't I don't know what any of that means. Full honesty. Um some guy probably. It's it's some sort of Orphic related text. Um and he, uh, Epicurus, says that the world began in the likeness of an egg, and the wind, um, the entwined forms of Kronos uh time and Ananke inevitability. Now that's in like whatchamacallit, the like the bracket brackets, yes. So those are in brackets, so that's questionable. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so yes, and it says the wind, which is allegedly Kronos and Ananke, encircling the egg, serpent-like, serpent fashion-like, like a wreath or belt, then began to constrict nature, as it tried to squeeze all the matter with 
greater force. It divided the world into two hemispheres. That's what these texts are like. Let me find another one which maybe is not in. Are these all in? Yeah, no, these are really all in um in brackets. So yeah, I think a lot of I think a lot of Orphic stuff is off of like papyri or shit like that. Like I I can't confirm that, but I think a lot of it's dodgy. Yes. I mean, it's also just content-wise dodgy, like, even when we're pretty sure of the text, but, like, yeah. Yeah. Orphism? Weird as hell. Yes. However, I do it find it very funny that it's, like, the world is an egg, and they squeezed it, and now there are two hemispheres. Yeah. That, sure. Like, all right. Um... But I have a more a more fun random reference to Ananke. Is it Pausanias? In his so Pausanias is this guy. I think he what is he? Is he like first second century? Something CE? like that. Yeah. Yeah. He's a dude, and he kind of goes around Greece, and he like writes like a travel manual. <laughs> He's like, this is what's here's what you can see in this place, and here's what's in this place. Um. So he actually says, um. That there's a temple to necessity and force on the Acre Corinth, which is the, the like, Acropolis of Corinth, um, and that people don't go inside these temples. So, mm. very random. Um, so, uh... So she is, like, around. She's around. The degree to which she is around as an actual, like, god is deeply unclear, but she exists. Okay, alright. Um, in conclusion... Um, and yeah, it does seem like when I look at, for example, as well on the, um, on Perseus editions of texts, a lot of times it does use necessity in a capital N. So whoever has been, whoever has done the translations, it seems for multiple of these different texts seems to think that it's a personified thing. Yeah, though, though it is worth taking with a bit of a grain of salt because most of the translations that are on Perseus, they're like the ones that are in the public domain. So they're all from like 1911. Um, this is, this is accurate. So maybe, yeah, like it's not to say that that's an invalid interpretation. And I'm sure that in some cases that, that it is a personified necessity because as previously mentioned, the Greeks do be personifying, but it's probably not in every case where the Perseus translators, whoever the fuck they are, old as shit white dude who has been dead for a hundred years, um, were like right that that they yeah. that they were probably not. They probably didn't call that shot every single time. You know, that's my that's my sense of that. No, that is a completely good. That yes, I fully agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Perseus, by the way, is like a website that has a bunch of, um, it has a bunch of, yeah, public domain uh, Greek translations of text, but it also has the original Greek. It's really useful if you're studying ancient Greek, because you can be like, what is happening in the Greek in this text? And what's happening in the English? You can't see, but I'm miming typing right now. <laughs> yes, though, though I do, if you are just looking at it for general purposes, um, and not specifically because you're like studying a text... Uh, I recommend the new, like, Skyfe, S-C-A-I-F-E viewer version, because those are corrected um, versions of the text and have newer translations in some cases. Um, it's less good if you're, I, in my experience, it's less good if you're actually studying the text, because there's not the same, like, click to get at the LSJ entry mm. for a word thing. Yeah. It'll still gloss, but, like, it won't give you every single possible translation, which... Many times, 
as we we had this long digression earlier about like Farah, like Foron, and how many fucking ways it's possible for like a, a given morphology of some form of that to possibly be translated, including some ways that are very metaphorical. So like, yeah. Anyway, shout out to Perseus for making that possible. Uh, so to refer to now to Ananke as a character, I think, I mean, I think this works great. I think this is a, an excellent decision because the thing is, is his character is really mysterious. So to pick some like random tiny referential thing somewhere in Greek mythology and to put it in the text and she's literally necessity, which is the whole point of her character. Like, yeah, chef's kiss. It works so well. Yeah. And and nobody has fucking opinions about the personification of necessity. Like you really could have characterized (laughs) and, and visualized this character any old fucking way. And everybody would have been like, yeah, sure. Which is good sometimes. Um, Yes. Like, yeah, I mean, especially for this character that's like mysterious and nobody knows anything about her. Like it wouldn't it would be weird if she was like Hera or something. Right. Like it wouldn't work very well. Because because her even if even if it was intended to be such that her motives were obscure to the. The people in the story, the characters, her shit would be really transparent to the reader if it was a recognizable mythological figure. But instead, it's like great, all we know is that she is doing what she believes is necessary. Which yeah. is literally in the name. And that's all we know as the reader. And like... And she also like tells us that yeah. repeatedly. So It's great. It's very um, on brand. Yes. Also, like this really shows like the level of research they did. Like, I don't know how they got to that. Like, I had no idea that this was something that was personified. Like... I mean, I think they could have. I think they could have picked anything, and th- it would have been reasonably confident. And and they could have also just personified something, and I think that would have been fair. To be honest, I thought that that was what they did. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure they like figured it out, presumably, because they've done their research on everything else. So yeah, yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. Shout out to them for being incredibly thorough. Yeah. Even when they when they could have absolutely not been thorough at all. So, um, yeah. So, who next? Who shall we discuss? This is my last major person, and it's Dionysus. Yay! Big shocker. The guy I did all my research on for this paper. Okay, please tell me about Dionysus. I mean, I know a lot about Dionysus, but, like, please tell me about Dionysus in this, because he slaps. Yeah. So basically the, the, um, what like the paper that I wrote was about was essentially comparing this Dionysus to, um, the, the description of, uh, Bacchic rites in Libby's Ab Urbe, uh, Ab Urbe Condita, which I believe is, um, a, about the founding of the city. From, from the founding of the city. From the founding of the city. I translate, I should know better. I should know this because I translated it. Um, You're valid. And so- yeah, which is, it's basically Livy's, Livy's a Roman author. It's basically his, like, full history of Rome. From the founding of the city. Yeah, from the founding, which includes mythological stuff, yeah. but also this particular thing, which some of it's a made-up story, but some of it's stuff that actually happened. Um, and so, because, yeah, because Dionysus, basically, this is, this is focusing specifically on Bacchic ritual and not, like, Dionysus as a sort of broad, broader mythological character, because, like, what is important about Dionysus in this um 
in this text is his how he interacts with other people and how he creates a, a ritual experience. Um, and so, yeah, in um, book 39 of uh, Ab Urbe Condita, uh, Livy describes um, a situation in which a bunch of people were getting corrupted by some cult, by the, by the bad cult, the bad cult where they were doing no-no things like having gay and extramarital sex and dancing. A big sexy cult. Yeah, big, big sexy cult, um, violent murder. Um, so yeah, basically there's, there's like Bacchic rituals. Um, there's, there's a Bacchic mystery cult basically where people go and like, I guess emulate Di- Dionysus. Like they do all these quote unquote like hedonist things. Um, and essentially like Libby's like evoking a bit of a moral panic about this. Um, and he describes this situation where basically this, this young man is, um, his relatives are trying to force him to get into the cult because then he can get like killed off and they can get take his money from him. Oh yeah, I remember this whole yeah. shit. Okay. Yeah. And so basically his uh lover who's a sex worker is like this cult's real bad. Like I I don't go to this cult. And so eventually like he takes it to like political officials and gets the cult shut down. Um and so yeah, this is very negative obviously view of this cult um this is actually referring to while the story is probably apocryphal the this was something that happened these these rites were outlawed and the people who were practicing them were punished i think that that actually happened but anyway the the rites were outlawed um i think maybe like 150 ish years um uh, BCE, roughly, mm. the they kind of went a little bit nuts and are like, okay, we got to stamp this out because this is encouraging, or at least the the Roman political officials at the time thought it was encouraging, like licentious behavior. Um, and so now, the portrayal of Dionysus's rights in um, in Wicked and the Divine is opposite, and then they're portrayed as positive. Um, and also that there, so like in, um, in Libby's text, the focus is, is on like that there's a, a lot of illicit sex going on and B, that there's a lot of like violence occurring. Like people are killed who like want to leave the cult. Um, and there's probably other sorts of violence that is occurring, um, in relation to the cult. Um, whereas, and then the music and the dance are kind of like, a a side aspect, like essentially that the dance is just sort of frenzied movement associated with um what's the word uh mania yeah like this like this this mania of being yeah of you know sort of being like taken over by the god this like spiritual mania and then also that the music is to hide the screams right <laughs> of the violence yeah. um whereas here that that's all that's going on right and so it's like a real it's a subversion of of that in that like basically dionysus's form of worship here is, is a rave um, and, you know, it's, 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 like, literally an underground rave. Um, yeah, though, I mean, of course, there's still a, a certain evocation of illicit activity. Like, a lot of oh, the... Oh, yes. A lot of the imagery in the Dionysus scenes really evokes, like... Um, I, I'm not citing from personal experience for clarity, but like, but like the, um, what I understand to be the experience of, for example, like an MDMA or like an, ex- an ecstasy trip. Yeah, like a party. Yeah. Like, there's definitely, yeah. like, drug shit. There's a lot of, like, and I mean, Dionysus himself is, like, 
I don't sleep and it's kind of fucked up. Like there's, there's kind yeah. of a like, you know, and, and of course in today's society, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of condemnation of like quote empty hedonistic pleasure. So yeah. there's still, I think the baggage is still there. It's just that we get a lot of the Dionysus stuff, at least in the volumes that we've read from the perspective of Laura, who's really into it. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, the thing is, is like Dionysus like refers to it as illicit. And I mean, I think what it's sort of getting at too is like the, the useful experience mm -hmm. of going to something like this and having a positive experience. Whereas, you know, the sort of like, like more sort of like adult, um, like mainstream perspective is that these things are like dangerous. Whereas this isn't portrayed to be a dangerous experience. Like the, yeah. they're just vibing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's evidently taking a toll on Dionysus, but he's like, I'm here to, you know, provide a, a good time. And not a good time in a sort of, like, very, like, yeah, like, hedonistic sense, but, a, a like, essentially being, like, freed from your cares in, like, music and dance. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting, too, this is something that I wrote in my paper, is there's no sex in this scene. Mm -hmm. Um which is interesting because, yeah, Dionysus is often associated with, like, illicit sex, um, which I define in the paper as either, like, extramarital sex or homosexual sex. Um, and where, but the thing is, is, is it's not like that's not present in the comic. It's the, the god that's associated with essentially, like, an orgy is, is Inanna. Well, and interestingly, like, Dionysus is not that really that much of a fertility god and like the menads or maenads or minads mm -hmm. or however the fuck you want to pronounce that shit this is one mm -hmm. of those things is that like the accusation is always oh the women are going out and like fucking and and you know doing whatever and they're doing all this illicit shit out in the woods and they've gone crazy and blah blah, blah. like this is all from the bakai mostly but like that's definitely the vibe is like oh the women have, have gone crazy and they're going out and like humping the trees and the animals at each other <laughs> um but actually that's never what's going on bacchic mania mm -hmm. very rarely actually involves sexuality it usually just involves music dancing theatrical performance drunkenness but not sex like my my sense is that that is not that major of a part of most bacchic rituals and in fact illicit sex particularly amongst women or or sexual activity or or language speech was much more of a feature of um of uh festivals of demeter in athens oh interesting yeah like like several major like um the anthesteria and uh there's one other one too um that i'm currently forgetting the name of but there's at least two major festivals of demeter in the athenian festival calendar that involved um like woman only time where they were explicitly encouraged to, like, say naughty things and, like, make dirty jokes and dance around half-naked and, like, show off their, their bits and stuff like that, you know? And, like, make, and, like, make <laughs> fertility offerings because, because Demeter was the goddess of fertility. Mm, Dionysus yeah. was not, I mean, he has still quite a lot of association with, you know, green and growing things, but more with, more to do with untamed nature and, in fact, the danger of wildness rather than the um, fertile, uh, the, the positive fertility of um, agriculture. 
and which so and and therefore kind of fertility in general in the the Greek thought like fertility was very linked with agriculture because they didn't you know um, untamed growth was not a thing to be uh, worshipped generally speaking that's my sense I'm not a Dionysus scholar uh, yeah. yeah I am also not a Dionysus scholar I wrote one paper um, but yeah but like that's my sense anyways yeah I mean I'm sure you've like you've heard about this about this like text but yeah this is very much like um this occurrence this you know sort of banning of back rituals is pretty well like you can pretty straightforwardly assign it as a moral panic in the same way that we talk about more modern moral panic it's like the satanic panic right like that's exactly what it is it's like the kids are worshiping satan and they're stealing our babies and they're having weird sex and we must shut it down because it's evil. Um, and so this is like the, the real, really the like opposite perspective of that. Yeah. Um, it's the, the, the perspective from the side of like the young person who's experiencing that. Yeah. Well, and, and Laura really like, she goes in, in this scene. Um, what is this in volume two? Um, yeah. She really goes in eyes wide open and, and Dionysus is also like, He's very big on consent. He's very much like, when you're done, you can leave. Um, Which is, like, refreshing. Um, To be fair, Dionysus is uh, low on the list as far as, like, rapists in the Greek pantheon go. Uh, He's, like, not bad as far as that goes. Um, (laughs) The the bar is, like, in in the center of the the earth. The bar is literally underground, yeah. turns to look into the camera like I'm on the office. Um, but, uh, oh, anyway, but, like, he, it is, it was interesting to me how much he was like, yeah, you can be done when you're done. Um, especially since Dionysus, I mean, also Dionysus' whole thing is, like, just gonna drive everybody wild and, like, everybody kind of loses their mind and so there's less sense of that. Like, but also, I'm most familiar with him from the Bacchae, where he is Mm. doing his thing specifically as a punishment. So he's he's being a dickhead, like, highly on purpose. Yeah. Yeah, it's also worth noting that, like, Bacchae writes in the context of, like, Republic, like, the ancient, like, Roman Republic. It's like, this is an import, right? It's like, it's not just as that, it, that this is like, you know, sort of underground ritual. It's a Greek underground ritual. Oh, um, those terrible hedonist Greeks. Yeah, yeah. With their philosophy and their wine and their fucking. <laughs> um, anyways, <laughs> I I really like Dionysus in this. He's a great character. Yes, so do I. I also like that. So when they have the big, um, I'm just going to like bring this up when they have the big like fight and they, they invade Valhalla, uh, which is Vodin's mm-hmm. like stronghold and Ananke who's been, Vodin has been helping Ananke and, and they're holed up in Valhalla. And, um, when they go to like invade Valhalla, uh, Dionysus summons his like, he summons his revelers, so these, like, super-powered, like, Bacchic revelers fucking show up, and it's great. Mm. I was like, perfect. This is exactly what Dionysus does, is he shows up, <laughs> and he brings his fucking squad. His squad. <laughs> it's kind of his whole deal. He rocks up into town with yeah. the ads and fucks shit up. Like, damn, all right. This is, this is true. This is accurate. <laughs> uh. Anyway. 
Um, yeah, this is another thing where it's like, it's such a, it's a characterization that is drawing on some like interesting, like an unusual aspect of the character. Like it, it makes perfect sense as a way to draw out of the, draw from the classical material, but also it's not, it's unexpected. It's not like a way that we've necessarily seen before. So yeah, I feel like with all these characters, it's so refreshing because that's how they are able to treat the material. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I I really wish that we had the chops to get into some of these other characters because, like, uh, among other things, I am a, like, Morgan fangirl. Uh, I love the Morgan in this. I think she's one of the coolest characters, but, like, I am deeply unqualified to talk about a figure of Celtic mythology. I could probably have managed to talk about some of the um, like Egyptian and or Middle Eastern figures if I had done more research, but that would have required more effort. So we, we could probably get into like Baal and maybe Inanna. Isn't Inanna a like Mesopotamian? Yeah. The Inanna has like a bunch of different things going on and is like different. Yeah. Inanna's got, yeah, it has a bunch of things going on. <laughs> That's, I mean, this, this character, this, this, um, uh, oh my god, this ensemble in a nutshell, um, so-and-so has got a bunch of things going on, basically, yeah. boils it down. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, like, and yeah, I mean, I, I would love to, I, I mean, I would love to talk more about Lucifer and that, but she's also, yeah. that's also, like, I, I am, like, deeply unequipped to talk about Christian mythology. Um, is there... Is Lucifer in the Torah at all? I don't. I, I know uh, all about Lucifer. So Satan is a thing, but not mm -hmm. really the way that Satan is a thing in. No, not Lucifer TV series. Google. Um, <laughs> uh, Lucifer, Lucifer, Lucifer. As a name for the devil in Christian theology. It's a rendering. I'm looking at Wikipedia for context. Uh, the King of Babylon. So there's like, looks like there's some stuff in the book of Isaiah, which is a late prophet. Um, one of the prophet, the books of prophets. So it's not in the Torah. It's in the prophets, which is in the broader Jewish biblical canon, sort of. Okay. Um, but... Is it, it, does it end up in the, in the Bible? We get, we get Lucifer from the Vulgate because it's rendering a, a Hebrew word that means light bringer, i.e. the morning star. That's where we get all of this. That's, it's like from mm. a Hebrew word, um, Hillel. Uh, I'm sure I mispronounced that, which was rendered in Greek as Heosphoros dawnbringer or morning star and then rendered into latin as lucifer literally light bearer luce luca luke uh, lucas <laughs> looks lucas is light and then fair is like bring um oh yeah yeah latin latin <laughs> um and i'm really i'm really stretching my uh philology chops today um, sort of. Uh, <laughs> no, it's good. It's, I'm finally proving that I actually can do the thing that I claim that I can do. Um, the passage is, like, it's actually from, like, a description of the, quote, King of Babylon. 
so this is obviously it's the book of Isaiah, so the prophets, and this is like um, this is like the Babylonian captivity era um, when when the Jews were exiles in Babylon. So there's a lot of like um, there's a lot of vitriol against the Babylonians and especially the kings of Babylon. So this is it's it's from a passage um, basically uh, taunting and 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 um, it's it's a screed against an unnamed king of Babylon who's described as Morning Star, Son of Dawn having been cast down to earth, etc. And then it's taken up as a metaphor for Satan by Christ- later Christianity. Okay. Is what I can tell. And it seems like, and I mean, my understanding is that the bulk of what we know about, like, Lucifer, all the, like, Lucifer lore of Lucifer as a character, the, the fallen angel, the lost son, all of that shit, honestly, I think a lot of it comes from Milton. Oh. Like, I mean, we get some of it in, like, yeah. Dante and, um, like, some other stuff, but I think coming into, like, modern popular culture and interpretations of Lucifer as a character, like, shout out to John Milton's Paradise Lost, is is basically what that all comes down to. Um, I don't think that a lot of what we know about Lucifer has a ton, what we quote know about Lucifer has a ton of, like, biblical grounding. Interesting. Okay, so that was me summarizing a rapid Wikipedia dive um, <laughs> with some, with me only regurgitating the shit that sounded legitimate and uh, contextualizing as I went along. But um, no, so research. Yeah, Yay. research. We definitely did a lot of it. Um, again, this is. I mean, I did actually do a lot. I mean, of it this yes, time, but that's you know, few and far between. Yeah, but um, no. So, and this is definitely like. Uh, Bible continues to be largely outside of our wheelhouse, which is fine. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I Well, the Lucifer stuff is maybe a good way to transition into, unless you have any major points, I think I'm good to move on to, like, smaller things. Uh, are we going to talk about the whole, like, uh, the light of civilization thing? Oh, yeah. I So I had noted that. I don't know if I really have that much to say about that. I mean, it's, I just was thinking about it. It is a thing. I, I mean, I'll, let me see if I can find one of my quote screenshots. Uh, for context, I was taking photos of the pages of the book as I was going along. I took these out of my local public library. Shout out to the Madison Public Library system. Um, Go to public libraries, folks. Yeah. They're good. We need them. Um... Uh, the, I don't remember exactly what it was. It's a conversation between Cassandra and Ananke right before Cassandra, um, right before Cassandra ascends, where Ananke says, The gods walked the earth, but in every cycle we were beaten back by the forces of darkness. We came, fought for the future, and lost, cursing humanity for another spell as little more than animals. Time and time over, the gods were defeated and the night ruled, but once we won, the darkness was banished for a while. Um, and then Cassandra says, she says to herself, oh, Cassandra Igarashi, you are down the rabbit hole. Are you saying you caused civilization that we have you to thank for everything? And Ananke says, indirectly, the gods light a match. Without them, darkness returns. They have to burn brightly and go. That is what they are for. Um, also, there's like a weird little shout out to Robert Graves in that conversation, which I was like, 
Yes. My whole brain turned into a gun. But, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> into gun. F- fuck. I, I, live a, I live a Robert Grace hate life, but it's fine. Um, anyways. But it was definitely, like, I don't know. I was just kind of interested because it, it struck a, a bit of, I think, the same thing that I was already, like, sensitized for by our Percy Jackson conversations about, like. Yes. Yeah. Mm, the gods are the foundation of civilization. But because this is a... This is an international phenomenon and a multicultural pantheon. It's a little bit more like, it's a little easier of a pill to swallow in this context for me because, like, it's not wrong to say that spirituality or some form of religion is, in fact, an anthropological building block and has been the source of a lot of, like, development and inspiration Mm -hmm. for human culture, broadly speaking. Like, we have only just, I think, and this is going to be a sweeping statement with absolutely no backing behind it, I feel like we as a species have only just begun to enter a secular era where our culture and our art has any kind of secular basis, or and especially where secularism is in the mainstream and popular. Yeah, I feel like I don't really have any concrete thoughts on that, because that is a very sweeping statement. Yeah, like, and I mean, obviously... I don't disagree with you, but I, I, yeah, like, that is definitely a take that makes sense. So, I, I... It's what I will yeah, say about that. Yeah, so I don't think it's an unreasonable statement to say that the gods, that in a world where the gods are real and they are reborn on a regular basis to say that the worship of the gods and the literal like transcendental inspirational experience that they provide for humans is like the foundation for human culture and, and development and, and art and so on is like, I don't know. That kind of checks out to me. (laughs) It is a very, I mean, this is a very sort of like Greek mythological take. I mean, in the way sort of like stories are told like mythological stories are told about like the the beginnings of humanity and about especially about Cronus about how like okay well the gods facilitated the development of human civilization and that you know well like and I mean it's it's like Prometheus right like the whole Prometheus yeah. myth mm-hmm. because I I mean I, having now read even more of the Prometheus bad I can say that he goes on a long rant about how he's like yes I brought them fire but I also taught them how to divine and I taught them how to build homes like every art that humans practice I taught them. Mm. And also, I mean, there's also a thing where it's like, okay, well, you attribute, I mean, this is pretty commonly, I feel like it's pretty cross-cultural, like, but attributing being divinely inspired to do an art. (laughs) Um, And like, well, because like Apollo, you know, sort of like patron gods, right? Like being Apollo being, you know, a a poetry deity, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not the same in all cultures. Like, I want to say, having learned some things about, like, Buddhism and Taoism in Mm -hmm. the last year or two, like, there's definitely very broadly different conceptions of, like, the gods, but I don't think it can be argued that any civilization has no conception of some kind of godly or spiritual existence. Like, yeah. Every civilization has created something for itself. Um, even if that is, uh, even if it's less personified or like more like an animist thing or kind of more conceptual or removed from human existence, like there are plenty of cultures where the spiritual is quite removed from the daily human 
you know, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, but I, I do think it's fair to say that, that theology of some form is pretty universal. So, honestly, the only thing that twigs my what-the-fuck censor as far as this goes, and, and this being a very, like, Western framing, is the concept that the gods have fought back the darkness, and that humans, like that humans would just be scrabbling around in the dirt without them, because that is not something I think that's quite that universal, and it's definitely particularly a very, like, the, like, light versus darkness, good versus evil mm. thing remains a fairly... I mean, it's, it is, to my mind, a pretty strongly Western dichotomy, because, like, it doesn't... You don't have to go very far into, like... Asian culture before you stumble across, like, the concept of yin and yang, at which point it's like, okay, so yeah. now we're dealing with concepts of balance rather than concepts of antagonism between opposites. Um, dichotomies are natural, but, like, I don't know, there's just, there's there's a certain thing about it that made me go, hmm, but I haven't read the rest of the comics yet, so I don't know where that goes or what resolves it. That's the thing that I have to say about this, which is, like, again, I, I also haven't finished the comics, but Ananke is very much an unreliable character. Yes. So this is definitely framed as a thing when you're reading it. You're like, hmm, how is this true? Especially because then she describes Laura as, like, the great destroyer, right? So it's like, okay, well, is this the darkness she's talking about? Like, what is the darkness? She's very vague. She's evidently trying to control um, the gods in particular ways to, like, get what she wants. So, um, yeah, I think, I think this is definitely not something that can be taken as, like, the opinion of the authors, um, or, you know, even the, you know, the, the opinions of, like, the protagonist, like, this is very much coming from an, an, an antagonistic character. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so I, I mean, I would like to read the rest of the volumes and, and figure that one out because um, it did twig me as being like, hmm, I'm not so sure about this. Um, yeah. And so I I do, uh, I would like to be able to assess it. Um, also, I want to know where they're going to go with the rest of these stuff, so. Well, because also when you read that, you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it comes out of nowhere and doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure that's intentional. Yeah, it's like really um, not explained. Because nothing that you that these guys do is I don't think is unintentional. Yeah. Um, especially given the context, but you're like, huh, where did this come from? Yeah. Um, no, for sure. So I feel like we can move on to smaller things. Um, yeah. The first kind of small thing that I wanted to move on to is like, they evidently based particular gods off of particular like, uh, musicians. Yeah. I mean, I, please pop off. So, I mean, I, I don't know. There's a few that I like noticed. I don't know if you notice anymore. So Ball is like evidently Kanye West. He's got Kanye vibes. I think that was the only one that really stuck out to me because I'm just, I don't know what celebrities look like ever. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, because Kanye, yeah, so I mean, because the things where he's, like, refers to himself as a god, like, he's like, yeah, I'm a god, but I'm, like, also, a, you know, he's very, like, uh, hung up on his own godhood, which, like, is Kanye, uh, not that Kanye's ever referred to himself as a god ever. Yeah. That's never happened. Though, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, Ball's also kind of a dickhead, but he's, like, I think ultimately less of a dickhead than Kanye West. Oh, 
Oh, yeah, no, but it's, like, you can see that's, like, the inspiration. Yeah, right? for like, the look and everything. There. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the mural of himself. Yeah, oh, my God, that was so much. <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, the other thing is, like, the man, Lucifer, they really, like, they were really, like, hitting the, slamming you in the face with the Beatles for that one. Because, A, her name is Eleanor Rigby on her gravestone. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think that was her gravestone. I thought she just... No, no. That's her gravestone. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> they refer to her as Miss Rigby at one point. Oh. Um, and she says, you know, her parents are huge Beatles fans. Right. Um, but also, like, her name is Lucy. Yeah. Sympathy for the devil. Isn't that the Rolling Stones? No, no. I'm talking about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Oh. Yeah. I was just thinking of Sympathy for the Devil. Which is, in fact, the Rolling Stones. Okay, I don't, I don't know any Rolling Stones. So, um, but yeah, there's that. Um, some of the other ones that I'm just like, kind of like, this is kind of a guess is Sakmet, like Laura in the like little diagram of her room says like she drew Sakmet and it came out looking like Rihanna, and so I'm assuming that's like somewhat of an inspiration a little yeah. bit. I mean, Sakmet is a is a god who's like really really out there. Mm. Um. But, like, now that I think about it, this is just coming to me. Like, Rihanna's really known for these, like, sexual songs. Mm. Um, and Sakmet is a very, like, sexual deity. Like, like something like S&M, right? That's, like, right. you know, something Rihanna's really known for. So um, I can kind of see. Again, that's, a, that's, like, definitely a little bit more of, like, a distant reference. But I think that's still kind of the reference they're probably going for. Um, and the sort of last one that I'm, like, not 100% sure on. But is what is occurring to me because this is a comic written by British people in 2014 is I'm pretty sure um, that Amaterasu is referencing Florence and the Machine. Like mm. the aesthetic is very, very Florence and the Machine. And I know this because I'm a huge Florence and the Machine fan. Like it's like the jewelry and like the red hair, the long red hair, like that's a hundred percent Florence. Um, and yeah, like also the timing and the context, like, that would make sense as a reference. Um, and uh, the rest of the gods, I really have no idea. Yeah, I I mean, as I said, I don't know what any celebrities look like ever in my life. I, I'm trying to think of, like, I feel like I'm having a faint bell ring in my brain of, like, a female singer who is known for wearing a mask, um, which is Tara's mm. deal, but we don't get a lot of yeah. Tara. I, I wonder about, like... Yeah, I just don't really know, unfortunately. Um, and I mean, some of them it's like, okay, like, Baphomet could be any fucking punk, like, emo yeah. dude. Um, or, yeah, or like, pop punk. I'm assuming there's, like, Baphomet's giving me pop punk. Yeah. mid-2000s. Or, yeah, like, like, pop emo. Yeah, but, like, I don't... Yeah. I mean, you know, MCR, but aside from that. Um... Yeah. But, like, I don't know what any of those dudes look like, really. I mean, I know, you know. And, like... I don't know that culture well enough to, like, be able to talk about it at all. I, like, do, but I, I just don't know. I just... <laughs> you don't know what they I look like. I don't know what they look like. Um, he definitely fits in with that crowd, though. Um, yeah. And, I mean, he's definitely, like... Well, and so... And then there's the Morrigan, who has three different faces. Um... I feel like Minerva's look is really a call to something, too, with her, like, marching band jacket and shit, but, like... Oh, 
Yeah. I, again, like, I just don't know. You're definitely right that they're clearly drawing visual inspiration from certain specific celebrities, but some of them are much stronger or more identifiable yeah. for us than others. Um, I do think that, like, they're probably all amalgams. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced at least that they're, like, definitely some of them are definitely referencing a particular person yeah obviously with other bits the other yeah i completely forgot to, forgot about this inanna is definitely a freddie mercury reference oh yeah man you know and we didn't talk about minerva at all despite her being a greco-roman yeah deity. i just i don't really have anything to say about minerva she's not really a um she's not that much of a character yeah and also she's 12 so she's 13 in fact, she turns 13. Well, she turns 13. Significantly, significantly, as an important plot point, she does turn 13. And yeah, but I mean, she, and she has her, like, mechanical owl, and she's clearly, like, she's clearly tech-savvy and, and a strong, like, she, like, understands. She's very smart, um, and, mm-hmm. like, savvy and tech-savvy. She's an inventor. Like, all of these things are definitely... All of these things are definitely characteristic of Minerva, I would say. Um, and interesting that it's the Roman and not the Greek, um, probably because yeah. the Greek Athena, of course, is very associated with warfare, um, primarily, mm. uh, and like specifically women's crafts, where I feel like the Roman incarnation is a little more generally a goddess of wisdom, but I don't know that much about the Roman cult of Minerva. I, I've taken, I took Roman religion, but Roman, I took Roman religion in 20, uh, uh, 2015. No, 2016. That was a while ago. That was eight years ago. No, it was six years. Um. The six, okay. Anyway, shout out to Minerva. She is a fun character. She's just really not around that much. She's very cute. Yeah, what's interesting about Minerva is more that, like, the commentary on, like, child stardom. Yeah, yeah. And how her parents are huge bags of dicks. Her, like, exploitative fucking parents, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry that they died. That's obviously traumatic as fuck, but, like, anyway. Uh, generally ripped to Minerva. She deserved better. Yeah. And by better, I mean she didn't deserve to be turned into a child god. Yeah, and then presumably die in two years. Though maybe not now that everything's gotten fucked up. Who knows? We'll read the other five volumes and report back. <laughs> we'll let you know. Um... I think the other thing, so, to go back to what we were saying, what I was saying about Kanye, um, he, he, Ball says, I've always claimed I'm a god even before I knew I was one. Oh, yeah, that's a good line. Yeah, uh, then there's, um, basically Ball, there, uh, Cassandra's, like, talking about what Ball, um, she thinks Ball is. Um, that's a very confusing sentence. Because there's different, there's different aspects of him, right? And Cassandra is just basically being a bit of a dickhead. And um, she says, Ball, there's a whole lot of balls, but I'm betting on Ball Haman, Carthaginian god of fuck you. Mm. Um, a rare case of a cult with some evidence of child sacrifice. Not the usual blood libel. Uh, no, they really did it. We have the tiny corpse child sacrifice god. <laughs> um... And then Ball says, um, I'm not Ball Haman, I'm Ball Haddad. Um, yeah, both sky gods. One had a much bigger line on having kids roasted. Uh, and then in, in uh, parentheses, well, depending on which old white guy in an ivory tower you listen to. So you might be like, why did you tell all of me that, uh, listener, and also Julia? Well, 
my thesis supervisor is one of the white guys in the ivory tower. Um, because he, uh, I have a paper in front of me. He, uh, has written quite extensively about, um, Carthaginian child sacrifice. Um, and yes, there was in fact Carthaginian child sacrifice. Um, we have a bunch of bodies of children in little jars in, I, I think they're, they're in essentially like cemetery. I don't know if it's a cemetery or the individual thing there. Oh yeah. They're like this, this cemetery and they're called Tofits, Tofits, Tofits. Yeah, um, just gonna apologize. Matt's never gonna listen to this, but I apologize to Matt for butchering all of this. Um, but I thought that was really hilarious because that is Matt's area of expertise. Um, and yeah, they they were doing the child sacrifice. This is entirely true. Um, also, Carthage is for those of you who don't know, it is um, in modern day. Oh, dear. Tunisia. I want to say Tunisia. I think it's in modern day Tunisia. But yeah, it's, it's North African. And it was so Carthage was founded by um, Phoenicians who came from the Levantine coast in the Iron Age at some point, like less than 3000 years ago. And they like founded Carthage. So um, and then they were doing the child sacrifice to uh, probably Baal Haman, although um honestly matt's not that clear about this in this paper he mentions it like once hmm. uh yeah i don't know i didn't have time to read this whole paper i did i did screen cap the particularly cassandra's follow-up comment about like not the usual blood libel shit which because i was like lamau laughs yeah. laughs jewishly um but like <laughs> No, that's interesting to know that that is in fact true, that that there was some Carthaginian, like, child blood sacrifice happening. Yeah. And yes, modern day Tunisia. Good job. Yeah, so so they are, like, babies. Like, they're basically these, like, babies in jars in, like, quote-unquote cemeteries. And sometimes I think there are other animals. But basically, according to, like, the... There's been some argument about this, but this is what Matt thinks. And because Matt's my thesis supervisor, I think what he says is right. Um, Fair enough. That... Um, that this is in fact child sacrifice and not just like dead babies. Yeah, there are lots of there are lots of dead babies in antiquity. Yeah, child or and infant mortality was really really high. <laughs> yeah, but from like the sort of the I think the evidence surrounding like how and when they were killed, it really seems like it actually is child sacrifice. Okay. Um, also, uh, yeah, Matt. I think I've I've told you this before, Julia. But my thesis supervisor, Matt, goes around saying child sacrifice, and that's not the correct tone to talk about child sacrifice. <laughs> no, it's not. But that's uh, uh, that's how he says it. Welcome to ancient Mediterranean studies. This is what we're like here. Yeah, I will note he is he is not an old. I think I already said this, but he's not an old man in 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 the ivory tower. He is a middle-aged man an early middle-aged man in the, in the ivory tower yeah um, but no he's very nice no matt yeah he's not obnoxious no shout out to matt mccarty he, he is very nice anyway okay well that's fun yeah that i just laughed so hard when i saw that because i was like oh my god um but yeah i was like man i don't know if these guys uh read matt's paper but shout out to <laughs> to kieran gillen and Jamie McKelvey for doing their research. Some people are still like, this wasn't child sacrifice. But again, Matt thinks it's child sacrifice, which means it was almost certainly child sacrifice. Um, I think that's all I have. Okay. <laughs> to end on that note, I we're gonna have to put a huge content warning on this. Oh yeah. I, I have one all caps content warning. I have one more thing that I wanna bring up actually, if if we want to uh-huh. end on a slightly I mean not more cheerful note, but 
different, at least, because I was flipping through my um, non-screen screenshots, and uh, I did remember one other thing that I wanted to pull out, which is uh, Woden's great uh, rant about the patriarchy. Uh, Woden is a dickhead. He is by far the least likable of the gods um, on purpose, but he's very interesting, and he is a massive misogynist, and he's weird. He has, like, a weird Asian fetish and he's just creepy overall and he's like very aware that he's creepy he's like yeah i have a weird fetish fuck you he's he's like yep i'm the fucking worst and i'm a god so deal with it but like he has this really interesting rant and i'm just gonna like i'm just gonna read this because it's good it's also a really well-designed page so please read these comics but like So he says the following, he's talking to Cassandra, he says, You know what happens when a, quote, civilization kicks off? Babylon, Egypt, India, China, the Aztecs, the Incas, it's always the same. One guy gets a whole lot of women. It's a consistent perk of being emperor. For most of them, thousands of women. Over 10,000 in a few cases. Exclusively for him and jealously guarded. What that means is a lot of other men get jack shit. That alpha-beta-MRA bullshit is the simple-minded reading of history, failing to understand that all of them are betas on any scale that matters. We are all serfs. I was arguing with a girl about the oppression of women across Western history. Hard to argue with as a general concept. Of course women have it bad, but I was arguing the toss anyway. She asked me, name one time when you'd rather have been born a girl than a boy. I thought about it for a couple of seconds before answering, uh, 1896 to 1900 in most of Europe. Freedom and the vote and all the rest are pretty decorations that only matter if you're not fed into a fucking blender to leave behind a few lines of maudlin poetry and a smear. The patriarchy hurts everyone. He continues at the beginning of the next page. The patriarchy isn't a rule by men. It's rule by fathers. Most men will never be the fathers. They're just sons, and sons get sacrificed to keep the old man in port and cigars. The world isn't how things should be. Would be good to have to have a better world, but I'm not going to live to see it, so fuck everyone. Ideally, literally. To which Cassandra replies, you're not stupid, are you? Just evil. Which is basically Woden in a nutshell. And it's such an interesting rant because it boils down a concept that I think modern feminist and gender theory is, like, only just really starting to sink its teeth in, which is kind of the concept of multiple masculinities and how the patriarchy sustains itself not only by subordinating femininity but also by subordinating by by creating hegemonic and subordinated masculinities as well that like not all Mm. men are at the top of the pile it's impossible so but you have to find a way to create a type of masculinity that is willing to aspire to dominance but be content with only being dominant over less dominant men and women you know Mm. like yeah. And and to to accept that there's always going to be some some top some some top or dog, you know, um with a, like a bigger dick. Like it it's such a it's it's actually a fairly sophisticated concept and I think it's really well articulated in this comic, which I was not I was not expecting to come across an argument a, co- a cogent argument for why um toxic masculinity is the way that it is and and like how multiple masculinities function and and why like patriarchy does in fact fuck everybody uh in equal parts um in this comic about i don't know whatever the fuck this comic is about 
a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever this comic is about. Yep, yep, that's a good description of this comic. But it 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 was uh, good. I was I was impressed. It's it's about some things. Yeah, this comic is sure about some things. And the art art good. I have exactly one petty gripe. Oh, my yes. petty gripe is that Kieran Gil- or sorry that Jamie McKelvey doesn't draw some of the issues. Yeah. That's my gripe. Yeah, volume three is all drawn by other people. I will say, I also, this is also looking forward into volume five, which I'm reading now, but these magazine, these like fake magazine articles at the beginning of the volume are illustrated by, um, I believe it's Kevin Wada, who is one of the most incredible artists of all. Like, I, I just, his style is so stunning. He does a lot of alternate covers for Marvel and stuff like that. If you're not familiar with his art, I highly recommend. I want to make sure. Let me just double check that I have his name right. But yeah, yeah, that's him. Um, and in fact, if you Google him, the like second, the like second result, at least when I Google him, is his portrait of uh, the Morrigan, um, or one of his portraits of the Morrigan. But he does these really stunning, stunning portraits. So I, hi- I like. As much as I I love McKelvey's art, and obviously sad that he wasn't, it is really nice to see other art styles highlighted in these comics from time Mm. to time. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think the thing that I think I, that, like, I think I, although I've definitely read this before, I don't remember it, that to me is sort of, like, makes sense within the, the context of the story to have that different art style. It just kind of, like, bothers me, just because, like, it's not necessarily, I don't know, I don't super love art style switches in comics. You like consistency. I like consistency. And I just, I, I it's not like that I dislike these other artists. Are, I'm, I probably would enjoy it more in a different context. Um, Fair enough. But also, like, they did have, there's one artist, like, the, the mural of Ball. They actually, like, got somebody else to ink over uh, Jamie McKelvey's drawings, mm. to, to ink and, like, paint over his drawings. And, like, that I thought was really cool. Because that, yeah, that doesn't make sense to for to be in his art style because it's supposed to be something in the universe. So I thought that was really cool. They have a bunch of really fun extras in the back yeah. of the comics. I would recommend reading them, because they're all, like, they're all very entertaining. Mm-hmm. And, there's like, some of it is insight on how the comic is made, and some of it is just, like, silly jokes. <laughs> yeah. And a combination of both. Of course. All right. I think we're done. Yes. Uh, but, I mean... I feel like I should say something to round off this episode. Yeah. I Here's what I'll say to round off this episode. We have to do another one of these because I need to read the rest and then I need to talk about them out loud to process them. I'm I'm glad I've converted you. I th- It's good. They're good fucking comics. I, I know. They're so good. And everybody looks at my collection and they're like, oh, okay. And I'm like, no, they're good comics. They're good comics. And I'm obsessed with Gillen and McKelvey, and I need to read more of their stuff. You're so valid. For this reason. I just, they're just so great. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytradepod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. 
And if you'd like to support our podcast, you can find us at patreon.com slash classicallytrainedpod, where we also post extras and outtakes. Our next episode will be on three separate episodes of the television show Doctor Who. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.